Good morning. If y'all will turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22 as we continue our study in the life of David. My son Will was about eight years old when he had a nightmare. And uh, that's unusual for Will. He's not a real particularly anxious kid, but uh, he came to us and he told us this story. He had a dream in which he'd been bitten by a black widow spider and he was trying to find us. He was calling for us, carrying me, and neither one of us would answer. And when he told us this story, and this has been, I mean, nearly eight years ago now, I was astonished because I had a very similar dream when I was about his age, except in my dream, I was bitten by a black widow, and I went and told my parents, and they laughed at me. And yeah, it's funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. And I'd never, as far as I know, I'd never told Will that story, so it was pretty amazing that we had two such similar dreams. And what I, what I pinned it on is, there's nothing as devastating as feeling like you're all alone in your suffering. When you are hurting, that is one of the most isolating feelings there is. You feel like you are suffering in a way no one else has ever suffered. No one can possibly understand what you're going through, and in fact, no one... No one knows what you're do- what, what's happening to you. You see the world just go on by and you're stuck. This is why it's so important to go visit people who are in the hospital. Why it's so important to go see, see people, not just at their, fun- at their loved one's funeral, but in the weeks and the months afterwards when they feel like the rest of the world has moved on and they haven't. This is why we need to be the body of Christ. And, and David knew that feeling. Psalm 142 He wrote about his suffering. Like many psalms, it's a psalm of lament or complaint. And in verse 4, he wrote these words, Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape from me. No one cares for my soul. Doesn't that really sum up the way we feel when we're in the midst of a time of suffering? And, And most of us in this room know what that's like. And some of us in this room are going through it right now. Maybe you've been grieving a loved one who passed away some time ago and all the rest of your family and friends have moved on, but you haven't. And they're all looking at you like, what's the matter with you? Isn't it time to move forward? But you can't. Or maybe you've been struggling with a disease or a health issue that that leaves your body with pain, that that hurts, that, that leaves you stuck and you can't find healing, you can't find relief. Or maybe... It's loneliness. People talk today about what an epidemic loneliness is in our culture today. Maybe it's been so long since you had a really true friend, someone you could count on, someone you could just enjoy laughing with. It's been so long that you're starting to think that maybe there's something wrong with you, that maybe there's something undesirable about you. Or maybe you're one of the thousands of people who struggle with depression or anxiety, one of those illnesses of the mind that tell lies to you. You know, in past years, we didn't recognize these as illnesses and we just told people to get over it. And still, there are those ideas among some people. And so when you're, when you're struggling with depression or anxiety and you just can barely function and you just wonder, does anybody know what this is like? Does everyone think I'm just lazy? Does everyone think that I'm just self-pitying? Our culture doesn't know how to handle people in pain. We want them to take a pill. Just take a pill and get over it. And thus we have an opioid crisis, right? We, we tell them, stop bringing the rest of us down. And that just makes you feel like the black cloud that rains on everybody else's parade. We're going to read in chapter 22 that David 
went through this. In fact, he was in a literal cave when he wrote Psalm 142, where he said, no one sees me, no one cares for my soul. We're going to talk about why he was in that cave in just a moment, but understand this, that's a pretty good metaphor for the way you feel when you're in a time of suffering. You feel like you're stuck in darkness, you're trapped, you can't move, no one can see you, everyone moves on, and there you are, stuck in the cave of despair with no hope of escape. So why is David in this cave? What's the deal? When before we read chapter 22, let me sum up what has happened in the meantime. David is still being hunted by Saul. This is now probably more than 10 years since Saul first tried to kill him with a spear in the palace. David has been running for years. He's had to say goodbye to his best friend, the best friend he'll ever have, Jonathan, the king's son. They shared a bond that few people understand, a bond of friendship, a bond of brotherhood. And on the day they said goodbye to one another for what they knew would be the last time, 1 Samuel says that they both wept, but David wept more because he knew what he was losing. He ends up running to a place called Nob, an Israelite city where there are some priests of the Lord offering sacrifices. Ahimelech, the, the chief priest of Israel, is leading them. And David comes to them because he's fleeing from Saul. And the priests give David shelter for a while and they give him some provision and they send him on his way. And not long afterwards, one of Saul's men shows up and finds out that they've helped David and slaughters every single one of them. So now David has on his conscience the fact that I am responsible for the deaths of the priests of God. He ends up fleeing to the city of Gath. Recognize that name? That's the hometown of Goliath. That's in Philistine territory. What is David thinking? Because this won't be the last time he'll do this. I'm sure he's thinking, well, no one knows me over there. And Saul won't find me there because he's afraid of the Philistines. He thinks he'll be safe. And yet they do recognize David there. They immediately start saying, hey, isn't that the one they've written songs about saying David has killed tens of thousands? This is the one who slaughtered my brother. This is the one who killed my dad. This is the one who destroyed my son. And Achish, the king of Gath, is ready to kill David, but he knows he can't escape, so he pretends to be insane. He drools on himself and he goes around marking letters on doors and Achish says, why would I kill this guy? He's just a nut job. Send him out of here. And they throw David out of the city. And his life is spared. But you've got to think that's incredibly humiliating for a warrior like David. And so now he's hiding in a cave. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart. And go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So let's sum everything up that we just read. David is in the cave of despair. He's written Psalm 142. He's cried out to God and said, nobody even knows what's going on in my life. I feel completely lost. I feel completely despaired of my life. And suddenly people start to come to him. First, his family, which you would think would be a good thing, right? But remember, his dad was the one who called him the runt. His dad was the one who sent him out to, to tend the sheep and forgot all about him. His brothers were the ones who made fun of him when he talked about slaying Goliath. 
So I doubt that there are a lot of comfort now. I doubt their opinion of him has changed now that he's a fugitive. Then three, three different categories of people come to David. First of all, those who are, quote, in distress. The actual uh, Hebrew term means under pressure. These are the kinds of people who would show up at David's doorstep and say, you think you got problems? Let me tell you about my life. Secondly, people who are in debt, people who are running from their creditors because they can't pay their bills. And David, I'm sure, said to them, listen, I got no help for you. I got no money. And third, people who were bitter in soul, people who were miserable, people who were at the end of their rope. I know misery loves company, but you don't need 400 people just as miserable as you are. That is not comfort. And so David must have been thinking, this is even worse. Now these 400 people, now I'm commander over these 400 people who can't even take care of themselves. So I know, I know this is not the, the bright and cheerful sermon you were hoping for today, but the truth is all of us go through the cave of despair at some point or another. All of us. No one is exempt. And you need to know when you're in there and your mind is telling you lies and you think there's no hope. You need to know what you can count on. And some of you are in that cave right now and I don't know which ones of you it is, but I know it's true. What can you count on from God in that moment? This story tells us several things. First of all, it tells us your life, even if your circumstances change, God never will. Even if your circumstances change, God never will. Back in chapter 18, verse 14, it said this, David had success in all of his undertakings because God was with him. He had success whatever he did. Those were the days right after David had killed Goliath when he was Israel's golden boy. And Saul made him king, uh, commander of the army. And so every battle they fought, they won. David had the magic touch. And back then it seemed like everything I do is right. Now... It seems like David can't remember the last time he's done anything right. You go to a city to hide, all the priests end up dead. You go to the Philistines to hide, you have to end up like acting like a crazy man to escape. He's lost everything. He's nobody now. And in times like that, when your fortunes have changed so dramatically, it's very tempting to think that God has changed his mind about you. Like there was a time that he really loved me and he was really on my side, but now he doesn't love me at all. Now he's against me or maybe he's forgotten me entirely. You know, the disciples felt that way at least once. We know about it from three of the four gospels. We know the story, most of you at least do, about how Jesus and his disciples got into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And, and several of the disciples were fishermen. They made their living on that body of water. They knew what it was like. And yet a storm came up that was so severe that even those veteran men of the sea were convinced they were all going to drown. And so you can picture them, some of them rowing, some of them trying to keep the sail up, and some of them bailing out water, and many of them just praying to God for salvation, and then someone notices Jesus is asleep. Now that tells you two things. It tells you, number one, how incredibly physically tiring it was to be Jesus of Nazareth. Somebody who was in demand day and night constantly. The only person in this room who understands that even a little bit is the mother of a newborn, right? But even that is over after a while. Jesus, it never ended. He was tired. He was asleep. It also tells us that the disciples had forgotten who Jesus was. 
The book of Mark. Mark, out of the, all the Gospels, is the most blunt in his language, and he's the one who records their exact words. He says that when they woke Jesus up, they said, are we supposed to drown for all you care? That's what he literally writes in Greek. And Jesus stands up, and I love this, he just rebukes the wind and the wave, like you and I would yell at a fussy dog. He says, peace be still, and instantly it was. And then he looks at the disciples and says, where's your faith? Now, please understand what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, don't you realize I can do anything I want? Don't you know how powerful I am? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't you know that I care for you? Do you really doubt? Do you, do you really think that I would let you die and, and not even lift a finger? Haven't you seen the way I've lived so far? Have you ever seen me act in a selfish or uncaring way? Haven't you seen the way I sacrifice constantly to help other people? People who I have no reason to care for, and yet I do. And you're my best friends. Why would you ever think that I care nothing? Why would you ever look at your circumstances and judge my love based on those circumstances? Why not instead judge your circumstances based on my love and say, well, God hasn't rescued me from this yet, but I know he will because he's never failed me yet. Some of you remember, if you are my age or older, you remember a guy named Zig Ziglar back in the 70s and 80s, maybe further than that. Uh, he was a very famous positive thinking guru, uh, motivational speaker, master salesman. Uh, he was also a Christian. A lot of people didn't know that. He taught for many years a Sunday school class at First Baptist Dallas. Um, later on, Zig's adult daughter passed away suddenly. And I know some of you have experienced that, and that's my worst nightmare, is to outlive one of my children. And it happened to Zig Ziglar, and when it happened, all the positive thinking in the world couldn't pull him out of the ditch. And the night she died, he slept very fitfully. He kept dreaming that she was calling for him, and he couldn't find her, sort of the flip side of the dream Will and I shared. And the next day, he and his son-in-law had to go to the funeral home to make arrangements for her service. And I've got to tell you, I've dealt with a lot of funeral directors in my life. And every one I've ever dealt with, they're good people. They do what they do because they care about people. They want to minister in times of grief. But there's bad apples in any bunch, right? There's bad people in any profession. And Zig Ziglar had the misfortune of running into one that day. The guy he dealt with was someone who just couldn't shut up, who talked constantly, and who felt the need to remind them every five minutes that he wasn't a salesman. You know, Mr. Ziegler, I'm not a salesman, but this is the best casket we have. You know, I'm not a salesman, but I recommend this package. Now, Zig Ziegler was a salesman by trade. You would think he'd have a tolerance for that sort of thing. But he had to get up and walk away three different times so he didn't punch the guy in the face. And in one of those moments, as he's walking through the halls of the funeral home, just crying and praying for strength, he felt the Lord speak to his soul. And here's what the Lord said. He said, she's fine. She's with me. And you're going to be fine too. I'm all you need. You just keep walking. Keep talking. Keep praying. Keep crying. And that's the advice that some of us need right now. Don't stop trusting in God. Weep before Him. Don't stop coming to church because you're ashamed that you're crying in the pew. What better place to let people know that you're struggling? Don't stop studying His Word. Don't stop praying. 
God, God's love has not changed just because your circumstances have. Keep trusting in Him. Keep clinging to Him all the more. Secondly, your life still matters even when you're ready to quit. See, David's story remember, begins, you probably remember this, in chapter 16 when Samuel the prophet, the, the spiritual leader of Israel, shows up in his hometown of Bethlehem and anoints him to be Israel's next king. How exciting is that? You're a teenage boy and suddenly you recognize, you're recognized by Israel's spiritual leader as the next political and, and military leader of the nation. You know you have a destiny for greatness. And David at that point must have thought, my life is going to be fantastic. I'm going from rags to riches. I'm going from uh, the outhouse to the penthouse. But it didn't work that way. Now David's in a spot that's even worse than the shepherd field. David has gone from Israel's golden boy, the national hero, to public enemy number one. His life is worthless. No one recognizes him. No one helps him. No one even sees him. And I know, I, I, I wonder if David thought about taking his life in that moment. The Bible doesn't say so, so obviously we can't say that happened, but I wouldn't be surprised. People have taken their lives for much less. And I've got to say that when you hear those voices speaking to you saying, you're no good, your life is worthless, you'd be better off dead, everyone would be happier if you weren't here, you understand, don't you, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of the forces of evil themselves who can't steal you out of the family of God so they'll do whatever they can to hurt God by hurting you. So don't listen to those voices. Your life still matters. Before our country was a nation, when we were just 13 disparate colonies, uh, and, and this is during the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in the mid-1700s, there was a young man named David Brainerd who was a devout believer in Jesus, who felt led to do something that no Westerner had ever really done, he decided he was going to take the gospel to people who weren't like him. And Brainerd felt a burden for the Native American tribes of New England, so he went to live with them and share the gospel with them. But it was hard. It wasn't working. Brainerd was keeping a journal, and, and this is what he wrote at one point. He wrote... My heart is sunk. It seemed to me I should never have any success among the Indians. My soul is weary of life. I long for death beyond measure. But he didn't quit. And after three years, he started to see some progress. Some people came to Christ. And after three years, he had a congregation of 150 new believers in Jesus. Now, David Brainerd died tragically a young Man, He was only 29 when he passed, but his journals were published in America and across the pond in Europe and thousands of people read them. And one of the people that read them was a young cobbler's apprentice in England named William Carey. Anybody ever hear of him? Carey left his trade and became a preacher of the gospel and ended up going to India to preach the gospel there. And he was the first foreign missionary in Protestant history. In fact, he's the pioneer. On his footprints, thousands of young men and women have gone to all the countries on earth and taken the gospel with them. God only knows how many thousands of souls, maybe millions, are eternally saved because David Brainerd didn't quit. 
Don't give up doing what you know God wants you to do. Now, you may not have some grand life's purpose that you're aware of, like David Brainerd, but you are put here for a purpose. You are, in the words of Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared ahead of time for you to do. If you are a member of this church, you've heard me say that before because it's my favorite verse. And you're going to hear it a lot more because it's true. Don't quit doing what God put you on earth to do. Because your life still has meaning. Your life still has purpose. Number three, God is still at work even when it seems He is not. Let me ask you something, those of you who like to cook. Have you ever try to cook three things at once? Now, I like to cook. I know it's not stereotypical, but I do. And my family will tell you that my cooking is very hit or miss because I don't, I don't do easy things. I don't do spaghetti and meat sauce. I do something I saw on TV or, or something on those, those, little, those little videos you see online, those little five-minute recipe videos. Those are, those are like crack to me. I see those and I have to try it. And, you know, sometimes it's really, really good. And sometimes I'm the only one that thinks it's really, really good. But one thing I've learned about myself, I've learned to do certain things pretty well, but I can't keep three pans going at the same time. You know, if I've got, if I got two pans on the surface unit and one in the oven, something's going to burn. It's just guaranteed. Something's going to be overcooked. Something's going to be dry. There's going to be a fire started somewhere because I'm just not capable of multitasking to that extent. And, and I, I think for a lot of us, we have the misguided assumption that God is that limited. Because when things start to go south in our lives, we have the idea, well, it's because there's 7 billion people on earth and God's just not paying attention to me right now. Because God can't keep all of those fires burning, right? Well, wrong. God is God. He's not like us. He knows every sparrow that falls. He knows every hair that's on our heads. God knows everything and He's able to pay attention to us. He's able to hear you pray while I'm praying. He knows. He can multitask in a way you and I can't. But David felt that way. David, we know it from the Psalms. David thinks that God is paying attention to other things and he's forgotten about him. Job felt that way. When, and one of the godliest people in the, in the history of the world. And yet he said, well, God's obviously not paying attention to me. Many characters in Scripture express some level of that sentiment. And yet I want you to pay attention to something. When the characters in the Bible think that things are the darkest, that's when God is doing his best work. And I could give you example after example, but I want you to look at David. Because here's David, he cries out to God, and what does he get in return? He gets 400 miserable loser souls who show up at his stronghold saying, command us, we'll be your people. Well, thanks a lot, God. But look at what happens over the course of time. Those 400 men become a fighting force so formidable that no one can defeat them. They never lose. Right after this, they go out and they defeat the Philistines, something the army of Saul was incapable of at this point. Later, they will defeat the army of Israel in a civil war so David can become king. And by the end of David's life, there are 37 of these 400 men who become known as David's mighty men. There are two different chapters in the Bible that talk about them. They're the kind of men who do things on the battlefield that sound like legends. Like picking up a sword and facing a thousand soldiers in a field single-handedly and putting them to flight. Like going down into a pit on a snowy day and single-handedly killing a lion. 
These are, these are the kinds of men you write songs about. And these 37 mighty men, these elite warriors, come out of those 400 losers. And so God knew what He was doing. God was shaping something great when it looked like things were just continuing to spiral downward. You don't know what God is doing right now. You'll only see it in retrospect. Because right now, He doesn't give us the roadmap. He doesn't say, hey, let me give you a briefing on what I'm up to. He, he expects us to trust Him. God is at work in your life even when you can't see it. And then finally, number four, God will not leave you in the cave forever. See, in verse five, Gad comes to David. Gad was one of two prophets who consulted David. The, the, the other one was Nathan. We'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. And I think when you read the story of David, it seems like Nathan was sort of the court prophet. He was the one who David consulted with on a regular basis. David would go to him for advice. Gad, on the other hand, seems to be more of the classic Old Testament prophet who sort of wandered in and out. You never knew, never knew where he was. And then one, one day he'd show up in the, in the middle of nowhere and, and just speak a word from the Lord, drop that truth bomb on you and walk away. My guess is Gad was probably a little awkward, a little strange. Gad shows up at the cave and says, what are you still doing here? God wants you to leave. Get out into the sunshine. You've stayed here long enough. And so David packs up his things, and he and his 400 men evacuate. And their time in the cave is over. See, the good news, the good news is that God will not let your pain last forever. Either He will give you relief, He will give you healing or He will give you the strength and the grace to overcome it. So you will not stay in the cave of despair for the rest of your life. That is never God's will for any of us. The question I want to ask you, the question you need to ask yourself, is do you really want to leave that cave? And you may think that's a ridiculous and insensitive thing to say. Do you know that when Jesus met a blind man, He once said, what do you want me to do for you? And He wasn't being sarcastic. Another time, he met a guy who was crippled, who hadn't walked in years. He said, do you want me to make you well? You might think, what a silly question. But Jesus knows human psychology. He knows that when we've been in the cave long enough, some of us build a house there. That becomes our home. Our identity is formed around our suffering. We don't know who we are apart from our pain. Our identity is formed around our victimhood. The way we relate to others is by talking about our troubles and gaining or at least seeking their sympathy. We don't know any other way to be. We become comfortable in that role. In the words of Shawshank Redemption, we become institutionalized in our pain. And that might be the case with some of you. And the dangerous thing about that, not only is that not God's will for your life, because He has called us to joy, but you stand a very real chance of running off every last one of your friends and loved ones. Even the truest loved one in your life will eventually give up on you if they finally get the impression you don't want to get better. You don't want to change. You don't want to overcome. You're content where you are. And I don't mean to minimize your pain. I really do not. But there are people in this room, I'm sure, who need help getting over what's got you down. 
You know, we have an excellent counselor in this church. Some of you know him. His name is Larry Renetsky. He's in his mid-80s. He's been counseling people for decades. He's helped probably thousands of people move towards healing and joy. And if you would like to consult with him, call the church office. We'd be glad to give you his number. And if Larry doesn't have time to see you, we can refer you to somebody else. Don't be afraid to get help. But don't stay in the cave forever. See, the really, really, really good news is this. We know there is joy on the other side because there was a day when the Son of God Himself went down into the cave of despair. He went down into that cave and everyone was sure they'd never see Him again. His friends and His enemies both. Because when He went into that cave... They wrapped him in burial clothes and they rolled a big stone over the mouth of that cave and they said, that's the last of him. But then death was arrested and our life began. As he rolled that stone away and he walked out into the sunlight and nothing in the world could keep him down. Not the insults, not the rejection, not the wounds on his hands or his feet or his side or his forehead. Not death itself could keep him down. He was risen just as he said. And that is the pattern for all of his followers since. He can raise a body and soul from the dead. He can raise your spirit from the cave of despair. You just have to trust him. You just have to ask. You just have to believe. You just have to... Choose to keep clinging to Him and don't give up on life because God created you for a purpose. Are you in the cave of despair today? Give yourself over fully to the Lord who made you, who loves you, who redeemed you, who will never stop pursuing you. By the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you will rise again. And that is the best encouragement I can give you.